You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hello, my name's Kirsten Bennett. I have been at Free City for about three months now. I'm a part of the Spurly Somerville City Group. Um, I'm going to be reading from Ecclesiastes 8.1 all the way through chapter 9, verse 10. And you can find this on page 522 in the books under your seat. Who is like the wise, and who knows the, the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavily on him. For he does not know what is to be, or who can tell him how it will be. No man has power to retain the spirit, or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that I will be, it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat, drink, and be joyful, for this will go with him and his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor light or during, nor night do one eye see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out of the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though, even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise in their deeds in their hands of God, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know, know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy has already perished, and forever they have no, have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already proved what, to you, what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vein that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life, 
and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, I just thank you for this wonderful day that we get to gather together, Lord, and worship and praise you and fellowship together and celebrate these families and specifically mothers today, God. And I also thank you for this time that we get to dig into your word. I pray that you open our hearts up to see who you are more, Lord, and to illuminate sin and struggles in our life, Lord, and give us the power to overcome those things because we know we cannot do it ourselves. I also pray that you illuminate joy in our lives, Lord, though, because that is also extremely important. And I also want to pray today, Lord, for, um, for Central Middle School, Lord, and for the students and the teachers, Lord. I pray for peace over them this week, Lord. They have been such a blessing to this church, and I pray that we can be a blessing to them throughout the week and throughout the next few months. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Amen. My name is Ethan, uh, and I'm one of the pastors here, and, and we're so thankful that you're with us. As I said, uh, if you're a parent, join in with us, a grandparent. Uh, aunt or uncle or just a friend and you're here with for uh, baby dedications, kid dedications. Uh, we're so grateful you chose today to be with us. Um, if you're here for baptism this morning, um, we're also grateful. If you're just visiting, you just kind of showed up and this is the day you're here. Uh, it's good to have you. And if you're regular, um, man, it's so great to have you on the regular. Uh, quick note is um, parents, because we have baptisms today, uh, after communion, like at the end of our services, we always do communion. Uh, when you uh, take communion, you go through the line, we would love for you to just pop down to the kids' area, grab your kid, bring them back in here, and uh, that they could be a part of the celebration with us. Um, that they would hear that, you know, as we said, uh, we, we want uh, our kids to think of, of the many of you as uh, aunts and uncles, that type of thing. We, we want them to hear the testimonies of what God has done in the lives of our church and, uh, and to celebrate with us. And so, um, and they also add a ton of fun to it. A little bit of chaos sometimes, but we want you to get your kids. Bring them in here uh, after communion. I'll make another note of that as we get to communion. But, um, man, today is Mother's Day. So if, if you're a mom, happy Mother's Day. Uh, yeah, that, that, that does just require uh, and deserve great applause. This is also a nudge uh, to make the reminder in your phone right now to call your mom after the service or uh, to text her. You could do that now if you'd like. Um, if you hadn't thought about it till now, there's still time to swing by Dylan's to grab some flowers or whatever it might be. But uh, when I think about moms, I think about first my wife. Uh, this has changed my life. I used to think about my mom first, but now I think about my wife. And I think about the way that I see her daily, selflessly pour herself out over our children. And uh, for so many in our church that I see her as like a spiritual mom, not just a biological one. And then I think about my own mother, the tremendous gift of grace uh, from God that, that she is to me. She uh, it, it follows Jesus and raised me in the faith. And, uh, man, my life is really secure. And I was uh, sheltered from a lot of things because of her goodness. And, and then I think about my wife's mom, my mother-in-law. She's also a wonderful woman who fears the Lord and uh, who treasures children. She mothers all who come to know her. And there's also so many mothers, like mothers in this room, uh, that are kind of mothers in the faith to me. Some who are closer to my age, some who might be a bit older, but women who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus and have deeply impacted my life. Some of whom have houses full of, house full of, of kids, and, and some 
who only bear spiritual children. But I mentioned Mother's Day this morning, and as, was, as is true with any holiday of this type of significance, recognizing a few things and, and maybe missing a few. Moms are so important. As with any recognition of this type of thing, there's space that, that a recognition could also, though, serve as a reminder of pain and grief, of sadness or even loss. So I, I want to make note of a couple things as we think about moms, and, and then I want to pray specifically for any of you moms in here or any of you who might be um, affected by this. While many moms will spend today being celebrated, surrounded by like rooms filled with laughter or gifts and flowers, cards, there are also countless women mourning losses and uh, unsettled and unfulfilled longings. Some ladies have experienced the loss of children and some grieve for the babies that they've longed to bear. Some have lost their own mother and, and others desire a mom who actually cares while there's still more who wonder what they've done wrong and why their kids don't want anything to do with them. Wherever you land in this scope, even if you fall into a category of, of you, maybe you've lost your own mother, maybe you desire a mom that cared, or, or maybe you find yourself uh, waiting and wondering if marriage and parenthood is actually for you. Wherever you land, my hope is that today you would experience the love of God, that you would feel the love of God through your pain or through your joy, whatever you bring to the table, and that you would know that none of your sorrows, if pain and sadness is your thing, have been overlooked. None of your tears have fallen to the ground without account. Rather, God cares for you. And he has, as Psalm 56, 8 says, he's kept count of your tossing, and he's bottled up your tears. Your God is for you. And my hope is that today you wouldn't just know that. Like maybe you've been wounded by, uh, you know, well-intended statements in the past. An unintended arrow from a friend that says something like, hey, don't forget, for those who love God, all things work out together for the good. And that's true. This is biblical. But sometimes we need to know how to apply truth. And so if that is you, if you've heard that, and that's created a bitterness or a cynicism in your heart, my hope is that you wouldn't let the truth of that reality lose its power. It's not a sentiment, it is true. And because of Jesus, God is for you. So whatever amount of that assurance you experienced this morning, I pray that you would all together experience it more. That you and your joy, your grief, your sadness, wherever you are, that the spirit of the living God would grant you power to experience the presence of the nearness of God. So let me pray for you this morning. And then we got a lot of ground to cover. Father, we thank you for the gift of mothers. And I ask that in this room, as there are moms seated, Lord, I, I ask that there would just be a, a joy that really is rooted in gratitude, realizing what you've given for those who have children, that there would be just blessing folded back on you, praise, gratefulness, to thank you for your goodness. And Father, for those who are longing this morning, or sadness, or grief because of loss, or um, confusion, or any kind of messed up circumstances. Father, that there would be a dependence upon you, that, that you would reveal yourself, your presence this morning. 
that your nearness would be experienced, that, that there would be uh, you revealing yourself through your Holy Spirit and just wrapping your arms around mothers. So Father, we thank you for families. We thank you that um, we have uh, blood families that exist here, but an eternal family that Jesus, you've brought us into. And so we celebrate that this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, we've got a lot of text to cover this morning. This is uh, the longest part of Ecclesiastes. So uh, if you're just joining us, <laughs> we're a few sermons out from the end, and uh, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes, as you just heard Kirsten read. And so if you are visiting and you're thinking, well, this is a bad day to visit, uh, I hope that uh, you don't leave feeling that way. My hope is that actually, as we look at the Word of God this morning, that um, God would speak directly to you uh, then, as he faithfully does. And so to, to situate us a bit, Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom in the Bible. It's not uh, your traditional book of wisdom, as we might think, but it's a book of wisdom about coming from someone who's gone before us, speaks to us as having accomplished a lot of things. You like to party? Well, this, this, this individual's thrown a ton of uh, big parties. And, and if you like cool things or nice things, well, this guy's taste is unmatched. And the thing is that as we look at Ecclesiastes, we really hear the voice of Solomon coming forth. And much of this is a cynical tone that we receive as we read Ecclesiastes. There's sort of an observational, lived-in type, experienced wisdom that sees life we see this term over and over in the text, under the sun, and it deems all of it vanity. If life under the sun is all that there is, then why does any of this matter? Well, it's all hopeless after all, right? It's futile. It's a vapor. Meaningless. Fill in the blank. And isn't this much of what we experience in life? This is our wrestle of sorts. Like, we hear the way that Solomon speaks to us and explains life, and when we hear this, it, it resonates, the odds are pretty good that most of you in this room, if not all, come into this place this morning after a week of exerting yourself to some end that probably didn't pan out the way you expected. Maybe you put forth a lot of effort hoping to feel really fulfilled by your considered outcome. Students, maybe you've spent the entire semester working really, really hard. And, and now as things come to a close, you step into summer and you find yourself thinking, man, was my effort worth it? Or parents, maybe you've had lots of patience and grace to extend to your kids this week. Like things seemed like they were going well, and then this morning, the bottom fell out and all heck broke loose, right? You didn't even want to come, but you had to show up, and here you are. Or perhaps those of you that are working full-time, you applied yourself, you've worked hard, you put in the hours at work, you clock in on time, you do exactly what's expected of you, and perhaps even more, only to find out that your coworker, who isn't half the employee you are, got the promotion that you rightly earned. Don't experiences like this in life leave us joining this lamenting chorus of the preacher of Ecclesiastes. It's vanity, it's meaningless, does anything matter? Why should I even try? You know, I know we're demographically a young church, but I don't think these experiences of life are a miss upon us. 
And the reality is that as you age, there's a temptation to allow the cynic within you to grow. But here's the thing. Over the last few weeks, we've highlighted different aspects of the spiritual disciplines that we as a church want to walk in. Specifically, as these disciplines uh, contribute to our life transformation groups, but really in life as a whole. We've, we've talked about silence. We've talked about solitude. We've talked about contemplative Bible reading and contemplative prayer. And then last week, our dear brother Paul Taylor talked to us about gratitude, about thanksgiving, how in many ways that gratitude is really like the antidote to bitterness. But here's the thing. Gratitude is also the key to meaningful life. And here's what I mean. Gratitude requires us to look outside of self, outside of our circumstances, to realize that we are not the, the sun, if you will, of the solar system, that everything revolves around us. You see, gratitude stimulates the awareness that we are not the end of all things, nor do we hold or control all things. Instead, gratitude awakens us to the reality that we are held by another. And I think this gets to the heart of today's text. Solomon is going to draw us into the story of life in an effort to portray to us what it means to be wise. We'll see an overview of sorts of how life works. But as we'll see, and as you may have picked up from the reading, he's going to make us aware of the one who holds life together, who actually is and has all wisdom. And this is the essence of Ecclesiastes. It's the key of sorts to unlock the book. And we've said this over and over. It's hinted at, actually in today's text, in chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. But we need to read with Ecclesi- the end of the book of Ecclesiastes in mind. Chapter 12, verse 13. It says, well, the end of the matter is this. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. To fear God is to know God to revere God, to stand in awe of him. And and then further, what we have in Psalm 25, 14, we see that the fear of the Lord, I'm sorry, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And the Lord makes known to them his covenant. Well, the covenant of God, the promises of God have been fulfilled and made known through Jesus. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, he says, For the promises of God all find their yes in him, in Christ. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And then Jesus affirms. He says, you know what, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would also know my Father. We want to look at Ecclesiastes in light of Jesus. We want to honestly evaluate our lives and confess the interpretation of our experience meaningless. But as we do this, we fix our eyes on Christ, the one who brings meaning to our lives, who gives us purpose for the now and hope for eternity. So as we get into the text, here's where we're landing today. That wisdom is necessary to navigate life, but... Wisdom falls short without eternity in sight. That wisdom is absolutely necessary to navigate life, but without eternity in sight, wisdom falls short. And really it's this, that we cannot separate wisdom from knowing God. And so we're going to break this text down into three kind of points. 
First, we're going to look at the need for wisdom. This is going to be a pretty quick point. It's chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, and we're going to kind of see what it looks like. Kind of there's a, a clause of submitting to authority, and we're going to see what that looks like. And then discernment. And uh, then we're going to look into the limits of wisdom. And this is going to be the longest, uh, the, the biggest point of, it's pretty lopsided this morning. But we're going to take a long look at it, ultimately landing in the God of wisdom and, and how he is sovereign over all things. And then we're going to close out by looking at the joy that comes from knowing the God of wisdom. So let's get to it. A lot of ground to cover. <laughs> Chapter 8, verse 1. The need for wisdom. Solomon asks, who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Chapter 8 starts with a question that poses the need for wisdom. It's rhetorical. It says, who is like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? The section starts with an encouragement toward the endeavor to pursue wisdom. And we're given a picture of what wisdom looks like. It says a man's wisdom makes his face shine. The hardness of his face is changed. And so, like, for us, think about someone who you consider wise. Maybe even a couple people so that you can kind of compare and you can think about some similarities. When you think about them, do they kind of fit a bit of this description? Like, maybe they got that godly glow of sorts. You know what I mean? They have a gentleness to them. Perhaps a, a steady, gentle smile when you engage with them uh, that gives you the sense that regardless of what's going on, everything will be okay. When you talk to them, you realize the gentleness you see in their face is simply an overflow of what's actually within them. And the gentleness is the fruit of wisdom in their life. There's a wisdom from years of if walking in Christ depending upon God, meditating on God's word, season after season, feast and famine. And there's a visible manifestation of wisdom within them because of this, due to an eternal mindset undeterred by the present toils. They're wise, and you can see it. But then we have in Ecclesiastes 10, there's a visible wisdom that's also often juxtaposed with a visible foolishness. Ecclesiastes 10.3 says, even when the fool walks along the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he's a fool. Who's out there walking around and saying, I'm a fool? People usually aren't doing that. But you can see it pretty clearly, right? We experience this. So wisdom as well as foolishness is evident to all who observe. Look at verse 2. It says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Verse 2 is about the need for wisdom in submitting to authority. At first read, uh, the authority is pretty settled upon the king, right? But if we look at it a bit further, the instruction is to keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. The authority has been allowed by God himself. As if to say, you follow the king's orders, and as you do so, you're ultimately existing under God's order. Isn't this reminiscent, if you're familiar with the New Testament, Romans 13? It says, let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Ecclesiastes 8.2 and Romans 13 both focus in on the who actually holds and distributes power. We need to know that powers that exist in authority are actually in place because God has allowed them. However, they are subject to God. 
because he's put them in place. And ultimately, because he's put them in place, they need to honor him. We need to get that straight. So look at verse 3 and six, through 6. It says, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. This is speaking of the king. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there's a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy upon him. Here we see a description of this king having ultimate power. It's pretty resolute. He does whatever he pleases. His word is supreme. It seems as though his authority is not to be questioned. But verse 5 helps us understand the need for discernment in regard to authority. There's a rhetorical, who may say to him, what are you doing? And this insinuates that no one could dispute the king's order. But verse 5 highlights that there is a proper time and a proper way to disagree. Verse 6 calls us back to, if we remember a handful of weeks ago, the beginning of the series, Ecclesiastes 3, that there's a time for everything. And it's crucial for us to even recall uh, verse 14 of chapter 3, where he says there's all these seasons. And in verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, and God has done this so that people would fear before him. The difficulty in life is discerning the time. And this is a hard thing for us to wrestle today, right? I think about the last few years, what that's left us. Like as a church, if you've been with us, what you've experienced, uh, often drowning in these types of situations. COVID-19, that we had mask mandates and gathering regulations, etc. And uh, we had to consider a whole lot. We considered uh, in accordance with the county, what the state thought, what the nation was saying. We evaluated kind of reasonable acts that didn't cause us to disobey God. But one thing as we kind of made decisions in that season that we were unwilling to fold on was the equipping of the saints, the gathering, even though it looked different for a season. And further, we didn't make isolated decisions. There's a need for a a plurality of voices. You pray, consider options as a group, make a plan and move forward while holding to the convictional leading of the word of God because he is true wisdom, right? In so many ways, I remember that season. still feels like we're teetering on it, right? It's so exhausting. But sometimes discernment is, right? We need wisdom. We need discernment. And this week, I've especially been reminded in the past six days, as news hit the potential overturning of Roe versus Wade, my social media has once again gone to the dogs, polarized in the craziest ways, to say the least. Now, we, this morning, we could spend an abundance of time running down the, the whys and the hows of, of this particular issue at hand. And what I'm speaking of is abortion. Hows, we could commit an entire series to talk about life, cradle to grave, and how we value life. But I'm just going to spend the next few sentences and talking about just a part of this in the, in the discerning part. And, and I realize that in this room, I'm going to leave a lot of you unsatisfied. And if that's the case, I'd love to have a, a deeper conversation with you. Hit me up this week. But here's the thing we need to understand about conversations, specifically regarding abortion. For the Christian, 
for the Christian. I'm speaking to Christians in the room, not unbelievers. If you're just checking us out, this is family talk for a second. Let me be clear. As a church, we don't have political stances. It's not the same as to say that we're uninvolved with politics. We come to conclusions, though, rooted in the word of God, unhitched from a political side. God's ways, they're, they're not left, they're not right, they're not even moderate in the middle or centrist. They're altogether higher and utterly different. One helpful way for us to consider this is, is just this reality that we celebrate every week. Jesus is Lord. Rooted in this, this means that Christ and his word has the first and final say, ultimate authority that we come under him. What God says is true, is true. And so we must help and live and operate in wisdom with discernment as God intends. So Christians, I I realize that the cultural current rhetoric has hitched about 15 things together in an effort to get you to agree that my body, my choice. But what we need is wisdom discernment to see through this smokescreen of a collection of ideas and distractions and to settle reality. To take human life is a violation of God's order. And it's okay to say that because God prescribes this way of life for us. Now there's ways that we say that, right? It's from this realization that we have other things to now consider. There are absolutely issues at hand. If abortion is outlawed because we value human life, the battle's far from over. How do we care for the families of unborn, of now born babies who don't have the means to care for themselves? And what do we do when a mother is unable to care for a child? What about orphans when parents have chose life and now a child's homeless? The list could go on. But I want us to see a bit more clearly, to discern the times, the conversations at hand. The existence of life is not the same as the consideration of the quality of life. While both matter, they're not balanced considerations. So we can wrestle and settle the more weighty matters and then consider what our part is in the others. And notice I say, consider what our part is, not if we have a part. James 1.27 says that pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Not to just say we care, but to look after, to actually care. This might mean opening up your home. It might direct how you utilize your finances to meet needs to support. I want you to realize that the conversation of pro-life, pro-choice in particular should not be about winning or being right for our own sake. For the Christian, it's about seeing things the way God sees things. To see things God's way requires knowing God. And isn't this wisdom? We have to discern what is tied to our convenience versus what is God's way. Christians We don't just point and proclaim injustice. Christians are willing to be inconvenienced in order to step into the places of injustice, to exist as the hands and feet of Jesus. Discernment is understanding the foundation and judging well what to do based upon God's word. This is in practice fearing God. 
standing in awe of him, allowing God to be God. We need discernment. We need wisdom. But we also need to realize the limits of our wisdom. Look at verse 7. It says, for he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit. The ESV says spirit. The Christian standard, the New American standard, the New International Version, I think, has a better or at least clearer translation of this to help us. Uh, no man has the power to retain the wind. The wind. Or the power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying to my heart all that's done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Here Solomon helps us understand that our troubles, our anxieties, our fears lay heavy upon us because we're actually aware that our wisdom is limited. It's not simply that we don't know the future. We also, as much as we may not want to admit in this moment, we're unable to know or control the present. Who of you has the ability to control the wind? No one, right? If you did, you'd be like richer than Elon Musk because you could like direct that stuff, renewable energy, and you just got dollars coming in, right? Or what about death? When's the last time you had a say in, in a loved one passing? Brothers and sisters, we are regularly delusional in our assumptions to the extent of our knowledge. If you're like me, you, you may naturally operate as though you have all knowledge. Man, that stinks when we think that way, right? You've got the internet at your fingertips. You have a phone in your pocket at all times or in your hand. A quick search and you can find information of whatever your heart desires. The problem is that we have access to what we should actually see as all human knowledge. Which is altogether different than all knowledge. We so often operate as in what we think is certainty, but really it's nothing more than conjecture and, and perhaps good ideas. We need to realize the limits of our wisdom, and we need to recognize the fullness of wisdom and where it dwells with God himself. Look at verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place, and they were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also was vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. Solomon highlights one of the injustices of life. We saw this a few weeks back, uh, right before Easter in uh, Ecclesiastes 7.15, excuse me, where he says, in my vain life I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And he says, what in the world? This is the same thought here. The wicked are buried in what looks like dignity. When they were the ones going in and out of the city, they were praised, seemingly unscathed by their evil doing. And because of it, we see the description, verse 11, that their hearts are fully set to do evil. Solomon says there's an injustice and it's only getting worse. But then we're giving a glimpse outside of what Solomon can readily see 
In verses 12 and 13, he looks beyond the life that's under the sun, considers the limitations to his understanding, and then seems to place a dependence upon God and God's limitless wisdom. Verse 12, he says, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. It will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. And it's here that we begin to see Solomon settle into the understanding of wisdom with eternity in sight. We know that wisdom is necessary, but we're also so regularly confounded by the limits of wisdom under the sun. We need eyes to see beyond the sun. He continues in verse 14. There's a vanity that takes place on the earth and that the righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the world, and there is a wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also his vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink, be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. We'll come back to that shortly. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, and see the business that is done on the earth, and how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep. I saw all the work of God. The man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much he may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. I don't know if we need anything more clear than this to say that our wisdom is limited. However much we toil in seeking, verse 17, three times, says we cannot find it out. We cannot understand God's ways because chapter 8, verse 11 is true, that the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. This is our reality. This is our problem. Not something out there, outside of us, but the very nature of our hearts. Our wisdom is limited. Isaiah 55 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts, they're not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is holy, utterly set apart, and our hearts are predisposed, inclined only to evil. These two things cannot coexist. And Solomon builds on this case as we enter Chapter 9. Look at 9 1. As he continues to evaluate the limits of wisdom. He says, But in all of this, I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. What we should see here is God is sovereign, bubbling up to the surface. Whether it's love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, and the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man, they're full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Solomon continues to build his case regarding the limitation of human knowledge. He says, I cannot comprehend. He says, the same fate exists for everyone. All die, 
regardless of what they have or haven't done. And again in verse 3, we see him reference this evil, this madness in the heart of humanity. Surely this is a reference back to Genesis 1 and 2 where we see God create, he breathes life, and he commissions man and woman to live forever under his good order with him. However, as we continue into Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They defied his law. They incurred the debt of sin, resulting in death. We were created to live, but we all now die. Paul states this in Romans 6, 23, in the first of it, where he says, the wages of sin is death. Look at verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Here we have this interesting proverb of sorts. In biblical language, one thing we, we need to know is that dogs are not like uh, your dogs. They're not like uh, your favorite pet. Dogs in the scriptures are regularly described as despicable creatures, not man's best friend. And a lion is the king of all creatures, right? To be feared to be revered, to be standing in awe of. When you see a lion, if you're at the zoo and he's close, you're like, whoa, right? But what we see here is, he says, so to say that a living dog is better than a dead lion it is really to say this, that even a miserable life is better than death. At least there's still breath in lungs, a beating heart, because for the living, at the beginning of, of verse four, there's hope. For the dead have nothing to look forward to. They have no reward. They're altogether forgotten. Our our wisdom is limited because our lives are limited. As we experience the words of Ecclesiastes in these verses, it may cause us to kind of get back into that slump of hopelessness, right? Man, what's going on? But it's against this backdrop that Solomon then provides a a call to arms of sorts. Ecclesiastes 9.7, he says this, it's the command. He says, now go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved of what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let oil be not lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun because that is your portion in life. And in your toil, which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, Do it with all your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. With a nod to hope in verse 4, Solomon now says, enjoy life. It's as though he gathers up everything he said since the beginning of of verse 8, and and he collects it all. He says, man, we, we need wisdom. Our wisdom's limited. But then he settles into the sovereignty of God, and he now points us to say, man, but there is a, a joy that comes from knowing God the God of wisdom. First consider the end of verse seven. He says, God has already approved of what you do. This should help us consider the type of enjoyment we are to pursue. This is not a self-indulgence. It's not a life of rebellion. Rather, it's a God indulgence. 
Luke eleven thirteen tells us that God is a good father who gives good gifts to his children. And the gifts that he gives are to serve as an avenue to actually enjoy, delight in him. Solomon's saying that because God is sovereign, now go and enjoy the life he's given. And doesn't this tie right into gratitude for us? When we think of ourselves as the end of all things, as the realizer of all that there is, we have no place to place our thanksgiving. We actually have no need for thanksgiving. <laughs> who thanks themselves? That's kind of weird. Maybe it's kind of like the fool who walks around and he says, I'm a fool, right? But if we step out of the self-delusion and into reality, we realize that God holds everything. And that, as James 1.17 says, that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from God, from the Father of lights. Where there's no variation, there's no shadow due to change. He is faithful, constant. Although there's difficulties in life, they are intended to strengthen and to conform God's children into the image of Jesus. God's intentions are always for good. And further, there's nothing in this world that is truly good, that has any other origin than God himself. That's why we have these commands. There's four commands, four things to enjoy. First, Solomon says, enjoy your, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. This is like super practical, right? Many of you today, you're going to leave this place and you're going to go grab lunch. You might do that with your mom. You might do that on your own. You might do that with friends. I don't know where you're headed. But here's a really simple practice. Give thanks to God. As you taste things, as you even, if you're sitting in a restaurant, you survey and you look around and there's all types of different people, image bearers of God. Maybe that'd be a helpful way for us to see people. Give thanks to him. He's given you taste buds. He intends that you would enjoy flavors. And this does say wine, so maybe wine you should enjoy. Maybe. This is a God indulgence, not a self-indulgence. Don't be intoxicated. Don't be stupid. Don't be just delighting in self and indulging to some end where you lose control or you wash away whatever you're feeling or try to have the most fun. These are meant for you to enjoy God. Don't let get so deep in his gifts that it turns back on yourself. Right? And if wine's not your thing, don't enjoy wine. Grab a Sprite. I don't know, sweet tea. Water. 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 <laughs> he then goes on and he says, and let your garments always be white. Let oil not be, let not oil be lacking on your head. And here, white garments and oil, they're symbols of joy. When people were distressed, they showed it by wearing sackcloth. They would put on ashes. But when people were joyful, they showed it by wearing clothes, white clothes, <laughs> and putting oil on their head. Our joy, what we should take from this, our joy should be visible. So this could be as simple as like, put a smile on your face. Right, in practicing gratitude, man, it boils up and overflows into your life. Uh, on Sundays, when, when leading music, Cody has started, I hope that this is being put into practice. I didn't even notice today. But Cody started directing the band. He's like, hey, when we're up here, because if you're looking at me right now, this is really bright. Like, I can barely see some of your faces. But he's like, man, if we would just put a smile on our face, that'd be great. And, uh, 
And here's what's true, man. I'm sure some of you have experienced this. If anyone's on this stage and they just look mad, man, it's, it's a weird thing. Like, yeah, praise God. <laughs> but when people are joyful and smiling, it, it's, it's infectious, right? It flows out. Yeah. So we should see God's goodness. Should be visible. Joy should be visible. And then he goes on, enjoy your life with the wife whom you love. Husbands, this is a word for you, for real. Do you find joy in spending time with your spouse? If not, the question is, are you loving her? Ephesians 5.25 gives us a wonderful framework for what uh, the husbandry in the marriage is to look like. Paul writes to us this way. He says, husbands, love your wives. Can anyone finish this? How? I made a bad question. That was really, as Christ loved the church. And what did he do? He gave himself up for her. Loving your wife is laying down your life, your preferences for your wife. It's taking her, lifting her up, exalting her above your own desires, above your own good, for her good, to wash her with the water of the word. Exalt her to behold the face of Jesus more simply, with ease, with clarity. The key to enjoying life with your wife is loving your wife. And that has to be settled on knowing Christ. What you've received in him. There's in there an overflow of gratitude, understanding what he's done. And then finally he lands and he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Go through life with zeal. Press in. Be purposeful. Don't be idle. Don't be lazy. Don't be the sluggard. At work, in school, in parenting, in serving others. We talk about this so often as we uh, serve together on Sunday mornings. Like when you show up here, there's a lot of things set up. And uh, as we prepare for this gathering, it's, it's a hard work. Like you lift things, you probably sweat. Some people are going to show up in tank tops, you know, and, and that's going to happen. Cancel your gym membership and join the setup crew. But there's a hard work of lifting and, and moving things. But we always try to settle us into, man, there's a joy in realizing that we're gathering together and we're serving the greater body of Christ. And, and even further, that God has given us the very ability to do this. Hard work is a part of the joy of living. God's created you to work. Like some of you need to know that. Some of you are trying to like skip out on work. God's created you to work. This has happened pre-fall, right? Adam was to care for God's creation. And then after the fall, now it's going to be hard. By the sweat of your brow, with thorns and thistles, this is going to happen. You were created to work. And in uh, God's grace, he didn't take that from you. But he still purposes it for you. So you would see him more clearly. Purposeful work should, in some sense, give us a sense of satisfaction, some sense of enjoyment. And this is really a foreshadowing in Ecclesiastes of, of Paul's words to the Colossians. In 3, 23 and 24, Paul says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. When you work, 
You're serving the Lord Christ. Jesus is the key to enjoying life and the cause for gratitude. When we realize our hopelessness, that our hearts are, as Solomon says, full of evil and madness, that we have incurred a debt we cannot pay, we look to Jesus, the perfect one, God's only son who took on himself all of our evil, all of our madness, and died upon a Roman cross to pay for our sin. In turn, he gave us his righteousness. And not only that, in his resurrection, he restores us to the life that God created us to live. And we rejoice then in the fullness of Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Jesus, we can live with eternity in our sights. Our eternal hope is now reality, but we will fully realize this as we're joined together when we one day enjoy God forever in his presence, before his face. So the joys that we experience here and now are are intended, they're meant to direct our minds, our hearts, toward our heavenly home. The glorious day, the day of Thanksgiving, the wedding feast of the Lamb that's spoken about in Revelation 19. It's there that we'll eat rich food and enjoy the finest wine, washed clean, dressed in pure linen, white as snow, united with Christ, enjoying God forevermore as we cry out together in one voice, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And we long for that day. And pray with me. Father, we ask this morning that we would be a people who have eyes to see eternity. That we wouldn't get tunnel visioned in this life. That we wouldn't get stuck in the toils, the strivings that we experience. Even the things, the good and wonderful things that you've called us to. Our hearts would be filled with gratitude, with thanksgiving. That we would um, see your hand upon us, working through us. And that we would enjoy life not as an end in itself, but as a launching pad to to enjoy you. So Father, even as we come this morning to take communion, would would it be uh, uh, a taking of these joyful ordinance, remembering, Christ, what you've done for us through your death, through your resurrection, and the promise that you give us in eternity. Amen.